Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. you to take just a minute and think about some life-changing moments maybe that you've been through or that you've experienced over the course of time. Uh, You might think about something like your wedding day. That's a definite life-changing experience if you've been in that place before. Uh, I know one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to stand beside a groom at the altar and when the doors of the church open in the back and the bride in white is standing there, I'll just lean forward and whisper in his ear from behind a little bit, your life is about to change for ever, right? Like that's a moment of real life change. It's a crazy, crazy moment. Maybe it's when you had your first child, if you've been in that experience before, where you would say, man, you know what, that guest room that we used to have or that workout room in our house is now getting transitioned to a bedroom space, and now we're going to have a little bit less of a place for people to come and stay when they visit with us, and we're also getting ready to have less sleep in our lives that are going on because we're going to welcome this child into our life. This is a life-changing type of thing, right? Uh, Maybe you would think about some kind of a negative experience. Most of us, if you were alive at the time, I realize some of you may not have been, but we realize and remember what happened on uh, September the 11th, 2001. And when planes started crashing into buildings in New York City, we remember where we were, what we were doing, what we were going through in those moments, how we felt. That kind of stuff just comes back to us. And so we think about these life-changing turning points that we go through. For all of us in the room today, uh, the global pandemic that we've gone through over the last year, we can look around and just say this was a life-changing type of event. There were things that are different in my life now than they were beforehand. And so there are things that just change the game. They're they're game-changing, life-changing events. And here's what I know about all of those kinds of things that take place in our life. There are cause and effect relationships that exist when we go through something that's life-changing, life-altering. And so you think back to that wedding moment, and you go, man, this was the, the, the cause of me being able to say, man, because I'm being united in this marriage to you, I'm going to forsake all other relationships with someone of the opposite sex in a romantic way in order to be united to you. You're the one and only now for me. And so there's this cause that brings an effect into my life. Or maybe it is, again, that, that pregnancy, that child that's coming into your life, and you kind of go, man, the, I, I got uh, this moment that I have this, this news about a pregnancy, and it's going to change the way that I think about things, the way that I do things. And so all of those, we could go through so many different types of experiences with uh, life and death and, and uh, changing kind of things. And when we think about what it looks like to have cause and effect in our lives, but as Christians, we're here today to celebrate the biggest life-changing event that's ever happened in the history of time and the cause and effect that comes from that. And that's the resurrection of Jesus, that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ that he died on a cross for our sins, that he was buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he came back to life. The song that we just sang about, your buried body began to breathe. All right, so just so we get this, Jesus was not kind of dead. It's not the princess bride or anything like that. He's just a little dead, right? Like we can breathe some life back into him. He wasn't laid in a tomb in a state of like uh, just, just 
unconsciousness, he was dead. He was gone. Everyone knew that. And yet, three days later, that dead, lifeless body started to breathe. And Jesus stood up. And angels rolled the stone away from the tomb. And he came walking out of the tomb in victory. And so when we think about that, what we think of for us as Christians, we just go, man, that seems so good to us that there's this moment we celebrate now called Easter and we're excited about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you may be somebody who's sitting here in this room this morning or watching from home as you engage with us online and you're kind of going, you know what, pastor, I'm a little bit more skeptical than that. I have some real questions about this idea that a man would die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, and three days later come back to life again. How can you possibly believe that. That doesn't make any sense. And if you are one of those people who finds yourself in that skeptical place, I just want to tell you this morning that you're in good company. Because even the earliest followers of Jesus, when he came back to life, had a difficult time believing that it was true. On that Easter morning, when the women ran to the tomb, and Paul read the story earlier on stage when they ran to the tomb to, to go and to anoint Jesus' body. They were going to go with these uh, oils and, and different fragrances to anoint his body. And when they got there, the stone had already been rolled away and they found Jesus alive. And the Bible says that the women ran back to the disciples to tell them. And when they told them, do you remember what the disciples' response was? Luke says that the disciples responded by saying, that sounds like nonsense. Can you believe that? Even Jesus' closest followers said, I don't know if we can believe that or not. Then a couple of days later or later that day, Jesus shows up where his disciples are. He walks into the room and now all of them see him in person, all but one. There was one disciple who wasn't there. His name was Thomas. And so when Jesus left, the disciples kind of reunite with Thomas and they come around and they're like, Thomas, we saw Jesus. He is back alive. We put our eyes on him. We had a moment with him. And Thomas said, hey, you know what? I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes, until I put my hands into the nail prints in his hands, until I touch his side where the spear was thrust into his side. Thomas said, then I'll believe it. There was skepticism on the part of Thomas. So the next day, Jesus shows up again. He just walks into a room where they're behind closed, locked doors. That's pretty cool in and of itself. Jesus shows up in that space, and he looks right at Thomas and says, Thomas, come and touch me. Here's my hands. Here's my side. And Thomas's response is not to get up and go, yeah, I'm going to need to do that. I'm going to need to touch you. He goes, my Lord and my God. And he fell down in front of Jesus, and he worshiped him. And I love what Jesus says to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So here's another cause and effect moment. Thomas believes because he saw. He goes, I got the chance to put my eyes on Jesus. I had the opportunity, if I wanted to, to touch his hands, to touch his side, to hold on to him. And I had that moment. So because I saw him, Thomas said, I believe. And yet Jesus' response is, Thomas, that's great that you got to see me and put your faith in me as a risen Savior. But Thomas, I want to tell you that there's a greater blessing for those who never get to see me, and yet they believe. 
And that's where we are, right, church? This is the moment that we step into in faith at whatever point in time you became a believer in Jesus or if you're someone who's exploring the things about Christ and you're trying to figure out if this is, is real or not, we have to come to a moment where we say, I can't see Jesus, I can't put my hands on him, and yet in faith I believe that he is the Son of God that he died on a cross to pay for my sins, and then three days later, after being buried in a tomb, he came back to life. And so that's where we need to find ourselves. This is the cause and effect moment for us of saying, I want to know as a follower of Jesus that I'm walking with him and I understand who he is, that he's alive and he's well today. He's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. And because that's true, because he lives there are some things that change in our life. Because Jesus is alive, we get to experience some really powerful things. I want to give you three things this morning that we're going to talk about through the sermon today that will really just give us an idea. If you're a follower of Jesus, these three things are true for you. They're not all-encompassing. There are so many things that happen in our lives as a result of following Jesus, but I want to give you three this morning. So here they are. I'm going to give them all together, and then we're going to talk about them individually. Number one, because he lives, there is something deeply that we believe. All right, because Jesus lives, there is something that we believe deeply. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The second thing is, because he lives, we have something that we gain in our life following after Jesus. There's something powerful and incredible that we gain. And then number three, because he lives, there's something that we do. All right, so when you are a follower of Christ, when you accept him into your life to be Savior and Lord, to acknowledge that he rose from the dead and he lives and is at the right hand of the Father in heaven today, there are three things we get. Something we believe, something we gain, something that we do. So I want us to talk about that, but before we do, let's pull it from this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we're going to read verses 12 through 22, and we're going to see something that Paul talks about with the resurrection of the dead to some of the early Christians in the city of Corinth. He says this, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made Alive, And so here's what I want us to look at. This first thing this morning, the idea that because he lives, we have something that we deeply believe. So what is that? What do we believe? Here it is. If you're taking notes this morning and writing some things down, or if you're following along on our app, here's what we believe. If Jesus was raised to life, then I also will have life after death. Right? If this happened for Jesus, 
then my belief in him means that I expect that I will be raised to dead and have life after death. And the specifics of that life that we're talking about is an eternal life in a physical body. Right? And so this is where the differentiation comes in for some of the believers in Corinth as we're talking about these things. When Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus to a Greek audience, that idea sounded crazy to them. The Greeks had this belief and this practice that they kind of went through called dualism. And they separated the body and the spirit. And they really thought that in this dualistic world, that everything that was physical in nature was intrinsically evil and not to be trusted and not good. Anything that was spiritual was intrinsically good. And so for the Greeks, their thought process was, we look forward to death because it means the separation of our soul from our body. Then our soul can go on living, but minus this physical body that is evil in itself in nature. All right, so that was the mentality that they brought to some of these things. They saw their souls as being chained in captivity to their bodies and that the highest good came when death happened and their soul was set free. So in Corinth, there are some Christians who have been saying that Jesus had not been raised from the dead in a physical bodily stance. And so they believed that Jesus was alive. Paul confirms that in earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians they believed Jesus was alive, but they believed that he was alive only as a spirit, as a, as a soul being, right? And so when they thought about this, they didn't believe in a life-giving bodily resurrection. And so Paul is trying to tell them that Jesus was not just a living soul, but that he had a physical glorified body. So when Jesus comes back, if you read through the Gospels, and I would encourage you to do this, just read the last few chapters of the Gospels after Jesus' resurrection and watch what he does. There's a moment where Jesus is talking to some guys on a road and they don't know who he is, and then he gets to a place where they invite him to stay with them for the night and spends the night with them. And when he gets there, he sits down at this meal and he takes bread like he had done three days before at the Last Supper, and he broke it. Right? And when they saw him break the bread, it reminded them that's exactly what Jesus did. And it says that their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus for who he was. And so they have this moment of clarity, but it's because Jesus in a physical, tangible body takes bread and breaks it and gives it to them. Later, he's going to sit down at a meal with some of his disciples and he's going to say, hey, can I have some fish to eat? Let me just prove to you guys that I'm really alive, that you're not seeing things. This isn't a hallucination. This is not a vision. I'm a man. I'm a person. I have a physical body. Can I eat some fish with you? Later on in, uh, I believe it's in John, when they're out on a beach and Jesus' disciples are out fishing and they see Jesus on the shore and they get this great catch of fish and they bring it into the shore. And Jesus is already sitting at the shore cooking breakfast for his disciples. He's got a fire going. He's cooking fish and he's ready to receive them and eat a meal with them. When the women go to the tomb on the morning that they're going to anoint Jesus's body because they think that he's dead. When he stands before them and he reveals himself to them, the, the Bible says that the women grasp his feet and they fall and they worship him. So Jesus is physical. He has a risen physical body. And Paul's trying to help the Corinthians get that. So when Paul answers the Corinthians with these thoughts about the resurrection, he says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died with their faith in Christ, they're lost. And so here's why we believe that the resurrection of Jesus in a glorified body is not only possible, but it's necessary. There are some things he points out in this passage. Let me just list them for you. I think they're going to come up on the screen. Write this down if you're taking notes. If there's no resurrection, we face devastating consequences. And here's what he points out in this passage. He says, listen, if there's no resurrection, then one, Christ would not have been raised. Two, preaching the gospel would be absolutely meaningless. Why would we do that? If there's no resurrected Savior, why preach about a resurrected Christ? Three, faith in Jesus would be absolutely worthless. Why would we possibly put our faith in a God who's not alive? And so he says that would be a worthless faith. Number four, preaching the resurrection would make Christians absolute liars. So for me as a pastor standing in front of an audience like this and talking about the resurrection of Jesus, if that's not true, then you guys should never listen to anything that I say because I am an absolute liar. And everything else that I'm telling you about how to live your life in Christ is an absolute waste of your time. And so here's what he says next. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then all people would be lost in their sins with no hope of forgiveness. It's not just Jesus' death on the cross that gives us forgiveness of sins. It's also his resurrection from the dead. And so he says, if that's not true, then we're hopeless and we're lost in sins. The next thing is all Christians who have already died would be lost, eternally punished. He says, if they put their faith in Jesus for their own resurrection after they die and Jesus didn't come back to life, then the reality is and the result is when they died, they're lost for eternity too because they believed something that was false. And then the last one, he says, if that's not true, if Jesus did not come back from the grave, Christians of all people on the earth are the most to be pitied. People should look at us and go, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you, but you guys believe crazy things. I, I just feel pity for you and sorrow for you. And a lot of people think that way about us anyway. You believe that your God came to earth, took on flesh like a man, became a human being, lived a perfect sinless life, never did anything wrong, and yet was crucified on a cross? And you believe that his blood poured out for you forgives you of your sins? And then not only that, but when they put him in a tomb three days later, you guys, silly Christians, believe that Jesus came back to life. Listen, if those things are not true, we should be pitied because we believe absolute crazy things. But the good news is, and why we celebrate Easter, is that they're absolutely true. Because Jesus is all of those things and has done all of those things. And because he lives, we also believe we will be raised to be like him, with him, forever in glory. 
And so later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the bodies that we're going to receive. He's caught up in this moment of going, we need to know that this is not just a spiritual resurrection, but it is a bodily resurrection. And so listen to how Paul tells the Corinthians, we will be clothed in the next life after we die and when we spend eternity with Jesus. He says in verse 42 through 44, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown or put in the ground, buried, is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. And so he says, your body now is weak. It's perishable. It's broken. Anybody feel that this morning? Have a hard time getting out of bed and getting here today? Like just going, I'm just, I feel old. I hurt everywhere. I'm a little sore. We worked pretty hard yesterday doing yard work and all kinds of stuff. And I woke up this morning. I was like, I'm just kind of sore everywhere. My body is not powerful and, and full of life. My body is decaying. It's breaking down. It's going to be placed in the ground one day. But he says, but the body to come, the spiritual body that's going to result in the resurrection, is going to be a spiritual body, completely whole, to no longer feel the pain that we feel, to no longer experience the difficulties that we experience, to no longer be limited like we're now limited, and to be eternal with Jesus forever. And so when we think about these things, this first thing that we're ta talking about this morning, what we believe as a result of the resurrection, is that we will, if Christ has been raised, we also will be raised. We also will be given a body like his, a spiritual body that will last forever. All right, so that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Because he lives, we have something we gain, right? So what do we gain as a result of Jesus being alive? We gain hope for eternity. What we gain because Jesus has come alive is hope forever. And so we see this in verse 19, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when Paul uses the word hope in this verse, he doesn't use it the way that we often do, right? When we talk about hope, we talk about it like this, man, I, I hope that the teams I pick to be in the finals of the final four this weekend make it to the finals. And if you're watching the games and the tournaments and you didn't watch last night's game, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. So you might want to plug your ears and la 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 or something like that for just a second. But I'm sitting in bed last night watching the second half of the Gonzaga versus UCLA game. Gonzaga, number one team in the country, undefeated all season. UCLA, number 11 in the tournament, had to play themselves into the tournament. Now they're up against the big dogs. Literally, they're the Bulldogs, Gonzaga. All right. And so they're playing Gonzaga and they're winning the whole game. And I'm sitting there going, I have Gonzaga in the finals. I sure hope Gonzaga pulls this out because my bracket is going to be destroyed if they don't make it. I've got Gonzaga and I've got Baylor. I hope Gonzaga finds a way to win this game, right? And my hope is not confident expectation because I'm sitting there going, honey, they're not going to win. This is over. UCLA is going to beat them. This is a bad, bad deal. I don't have any hope anymore. They're done. When we talk about hope, we talk about it without 
confidence and expectation. Man, I hope my kids grow up to love Jesus and follow him passionately and that they pursue him throughout their life. I hope that that's true. But I can't force that to happen. My kids have to determine on their own and by the power of the Spirit drawing them that they're going to follow Jesus. I can't force it. I can't make it. I can hope for it. But it's not confident expectation. When Paul talks about hope, he talks about it as if something has already happened. He talks about it with confidence and expectation. It's not, gosh, I hope when I die I go to heaven. He's saying our hope is in heaven with Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. This is why Paul makes such a big deal about the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. He goes, you look back at him. If he did it and he promised that he's coming back for us and that we're going to have life with him after we die, then because Jesus came back to life, we believe and have hope and confident expectation that we're also going to come back to life. That we're going to reign with him and be with him forever and ever and ever. And so Paul uses that word with a confidence that we need to understand. Paul even says that Jesus was raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He goes, he's the first, but he's not going to be the last. He's the first fruits from the dead, but after him are going to come many more. All who put their hope and faith in Jesus for salvation, who have their sins wiped away because they trust in Jesus to give them this hope, will be raised from the dead. Isn't that good to know? That there's something beyond this life to hope for. Because i got to be honest with you, a lot of times when I look around this life, I'm kind of like, boy, this is a rough life. <laughs> and we've got it pretty good, don't we, American Christians? Life isn't all that challenging when you think about how a lot of the rest of the world looks. And yet we still see all the problems that we face. We still know the pain of death. We still know the pain of loss and sorrow and bitterness and grief. We still know sickness and financial ruin and relational stress and, and brokenheartedness. We, we know all of those things. No matter what your life is like and what kind of house you live in and car you drive and how much money you've got in the bank, we know how hard life is. It's hard. And yet there's hope because this life isn't all there is. Can you imagine what the life of someone has to look like that this world is it? That all their eggs are in the basket of what they're going to do in this life. And there's nothing after that for them. And so for us as Christians, we believe with confident expectation that when we die, we will be with Jesus again. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more fear of death. That's the life that awaits us. Because Jesus conquered death. He's the first fruits. And he's going to bring us back with him. And then that leads us to the third thing that we get to experience. Because Jesus lives, we have something as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we're called to do. Right? That's the third thing. What are we then supposed to do? What are our marching orders? What's next for us when we come into faith? Here's what I want you to hear this morning. If someone predicts that they're going to die... And Jesus did many times. He told his disciples over and over and over again, I'm going to die. He even told them how he was going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be nailed to a cross. They're going to mock me and whip me and beat me, and I'm going to die a horrific death. Jesus knew how he was going to die. 
And he predicted that. But he also predicted, but don't worry, guys, after three days, I'm going to come back to life again. Now, if somebody makes those kinds of predictions, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back to life, they even tell you how, and then they do die the way they said, and they had no control over it, this wasn't a, a situation where Jesus was in control of how he was going to die. He died the way he said, and then he rose from the dead the way he said he was going to rise. If someone does that, well, I listen to that person. I just do. Listen, if you're a financial planner and you come to me and go, hey, listen, I think if you've got a little bit of money and you put it in this stock, it'll make you a lot of money, and then that happens, I'm going to listen to you. Where else should I put my money? What do you want me to do next, buddy? You just tell me. I'm all in with you, right? You knew what was going to happen, and you promised this, and it came true, and I'm, I'm listening to your advice. The same thing with Jesus. He goes, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back from the grave. And then he does. I'm going to listen to him. And so then when Jesus comes back to life, he spends 40 days with his disciples and with his followers. He makes visible appearances all over the area around Jerusalem and in Galilee. And he says, I'm gonna, I want you guys to see me and be with me. He teaches them about the kingdom of heaven. And then he ascends back to heaven with the Father. And right before he goes, he gives his disciples a call for what to do. And so in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what are we called to do as followers of Jesus? We're instructed and called to go make disciples, to disciple others, to follow Jesus. That's our call. So for our Savior, God in human flesh, who said he was going to die and did, who said he was going to rise back from the grave and did, when he leaves to go back to heaven and he tells us, all authority now on heaven and in earth has been given to me, therefore you go make disciples. Church, listen, that's not something that we're able to go, well, I kind of just want to, you know, have Jesus in my heart and go to heaven when I die. I don't know if I really want to do the whole disciple making thing. It's not left up to us. This is the command of our savior. And just because of what he's done for us, we have the responsibility to follow in obedience to what he instructs us to do. And so when he says you go and make disciples, it's not optional. He says, this is what it means to be a follower. You help other people know how to follow. And so we talk all the time around here about what is a disciple. We take it straight from Matthew 4.19. When Jesus called some of his disciples, he said, you come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, you come follow me. That's the first part of being a disciple. You follow Jesus. And then he says, and I'm going to make you into something. We need to be transformed by Jesus. Part of being a disciple is having our life changed from who we were before we knew him into something totally new because we know him. Cause and effect. Come follow me and I will change you. I'll make you into fishers of men. That's the last thing he says. I'm going to send you out on mission with me. No longer to fish for fish. Remember, he was talking to literal fishermen. He goes, I'm going to have you leave that job and I'm going to have you go fish for men. I want you to go catch and find people 
to be part of my kingdom, to come into a reality of my faith. Right? And so Jesus calls us then to be a follower of his, to know him, to follow him, to be changed by him, and to be on mission with him. And so if you're already a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to know that he has more for you to do than just attend church. If that's your kind of standard of Christianity, I invited Jesus to be my Savior. I've submitted to him as Lord of my life, and I come to church. That's faith. I want you to know this morning there's more for you to do. Jesus has called each of us to go out into the world, into our marketplace, into our jobs, into our schools, into our neighborhoods, and help people find Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. And then walk with them in this growth process to know how to be with Jesus and to follow him in obedience and to love him and to know him and then to help them introduce other people that they know to Jesus. That's making disciples. And that's what we're called to do. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I want you to know this. There's a God in heaven that loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to this earth to live a perfect life, the life you couldn't live, and then to give his life as a sacrifice to pay for your sins. You deserve death. I deserve death. We deserve to pay for the sins that we commit against a holy God. We deserve that. And yet Jesus, in his grace and mercy to us and in his love for us, he gave his life to take your place. And when he offers you an exchange, the song we sang just a little while ago, the divine exchange, he offers you his righteousness to take the place of your sinfulness. So that when his father looks at your life, he no longer sees your sin that you deserve to pay for. He sees Jesus having already paid for it. He sees you having hope for your future. A life with Jesus in heaven forever, in a perfected body, in all glory, for all of time. And so that's what is available to you this morning. And there's something for each and every one of you because Jesus lives. The question is, how are you going to respond? And here's where I want us to close this morning. How are you going to respond to the idea that Jesus lives? And here's what we see in the uh, book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens and he starts preaching in Athens, this Greek city with philosophers and all these different people who love to get new ideas. They just love to sit and talk about ideas. And Paul starts to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus. And when they hear about the resurrection, they go, that is one of the craziest things we have ever heard of in all of our lives. Because remember, they believe that death is good to separate your soul from your body. That's the best thing that can happen is your body dies. So when Paul starts saying, yeah, yeah, our God did die, but then he came back to life. They're like, uh, that's crazy. Let's talk more about that. They invite him to a place called the Oropagus, and they let Paul talk. And Paul tells the story of Jesus. And he talks again about this resurrection from the dead. And in Acts 17, there's three responses that come to Paul from the audience that's listening to him. The first one is, some people sneered, and they said he was crazy, and they just walked away. We're done with this conversation. That's insane. Who would believe in a God who dies and then comes back to life again? 
But the second response was that there were some people who heard Paul talk and they went, Paul, that's really interesting. I've never heard anything like that before. I don't think I'm buying in quite yet, but I would love to hear more about this. Will you come and have more conversations with us? That's number two. Then number three, there were people who immediately, when Paul started saying that, they went, I get that. There's a God who died for me and then came back to life to give me hope for my future, and I'm in. And Acts 17 says that there were people who immediately began to follow Jesus in that moment. So that puts the ball in our court today. Because we have the same three responses in our world now that Paul faced then. You're either going to hear something like this this morning in this room or watching us online, and you're going to go, man, you guys, I mean, I tune in every Easter (laughs) And I get this message all the time, and every year it's so hard for me to get why you believe that. In fact, I think you're crazy. This is going to be my last one. I'm not ever coming back again. I'm out. You sneer at it, and you walk away. Maybe that's you. Others of you are willing to say, you know what? I don't fully get it, but there's something there that seems like it could be true and maybe is life-changing, and I want to know more. Can I just keep listening, and can you keep telling me some things about Jesus? And you're at least worth or willing to take a next step with us. Amen. To that, I say, come on, join the journey. And then there are some of you in the room today or watching us from home who would say right now in this moment, I want Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to make him my savior, my God from now on. And I want my life to be changed. And I want the difference that Jesus makes. And I hear this, and I'm ready to say yes right now. And if that's true of you, I want you to know there's nothing magical about you saying a a certain prayer or reading a certain verse in the Bible. There's nothing specific that I'm going to tell you. It is about a heart commitment to say, I trust that Jesus is who he said. He's God in human flesh. He died for my sins. He came back to life. And now I'm going to do what he says for the rest of my life. I want to put myself under his authority And from today forward, I want to follow Jesus. I'm not going to do it perfectly. None of us do. But I'm ready to start following him. And if that's true of you today, in this moment, I want us just to respond. And for you to take a moment to just be with Jesus and to say to him, I'm all in. And so if you would, would you just bow your heads right where you are right now? And if you're a believer in the room, I want to ask you to do this. As Kyle goes ahead and comes up, we're going to do one last song together before we close this morning. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a follower, you've bought in, you've said, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this, let's go. I've been following him for the, for the portion of my life now. Would you just stand up right where you are? You've already made that commitment. You know Jesus, you love him, and you want to follow him. And then if there's somebody in the room this morning that says, you know what, that's not been true of me, but I'm ready to join the family. Would you just stand up and say, I want to take my stand right now today. And I want to be a part of this. And from today forward, I want to follow Jesus. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.